0: Welcome to Stop and Talk, a podcast about connection and building a more vibrant region together through creativity, health, and community. This is your host, Grant Oliphant, the CEO of the Conrad Prebys Foundation. Thanks for joining us. On this episode of Stop and Talk, we welcome Megan Thomas, President and CEO of Catalyst of San Diego and Imperial Counties, of which the Prebis Foundation is a proud member. In addition to her 8 years at Catalyst, Megan has served as San Diego Coastkeepers Executive and Development Director and the Director of Foundation and Corporate Relations for Teach for America. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Megan, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to stop and talk with me.
1: Thank you, Grant. And I, I love this idea of stop and talk. It, it. At first I thought, well, that's an interesting a- thing to call a podcast. But the more I thought about it, the more it actually made sense of, you know, we got to actually stop and give ourselves a minute.
0: Thank you for that. that we're going to use that as a <laughs> promo because that's pretty much the idea here is to take a moment out. To, and that's what we have to do more of in modern life is take a moment to connect and find time to. Really understand each other, right?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. true. And I think, you know, certainly in the last few years, but just generally, we're all so rushed and driven to accomplish what we've set out for ourselves, what yeah. someone else has set out for ourselves, that this notion that spending time in conversation, spending time in thought um, is somehow uh, lesser uh, yeah. it, it has been absorbed a little bit into society and into uh, how. How we work with one another, and so having somebody carve out space to just hit the pause button and and do so is it's a it's a privilege, yeah. honestly.
0: Well, I love that, and we're going. I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about time, and we'll come back to that during the course of our conversation. But let's start by introducing you to people. Uh, although many listening to this program will will know you already, but tell us a little bit about who you are.
1: Sure. Yeah, the the danger of staying in one place for too long is uh, you you start to pop up on Google. You start to see <laughs> people who you're supposed to know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm from San Diego. I was born uh-huh. and raised here uh, in Escondido and in Poway, uh, and had a, a lovely childhood. A lot of my family is still here. I spent about a decade, a little more, on the East Coast. Uh, and I really recommend that to folks who who I can influence is that uh, especially being in such a beautiful place, uh, there's this interest in, oh, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go to a local school, et cetera, et cetera. And we have wonderful schools. But I think it really did me a great service to go away and see how other people live and what other cultures and sort of ways of being are. And importantly, how they see us. Surprisingly, short, story I was talking to someone who said you know people on the West Coast are just they're uh, they're so they're so fake they're they're just not very nice mm. and I was like I, well, don't, I don't understand that yeah. you know because in my experience being on the East Coast I'd walk around I'd smile at people you know I really I thought this was a great thing and what they explained was no in in New York someone might not smile at you but they're going to be real with you. On the West Coast, you don't know what you're getting. Everybody's going to smile at you, but they're not being real. Like, they're not they're not having a relationship with you. Uh, and so it was just an interesting take on what it means to, even in a, in a split moment, to what connect with somebody. What constitutes friendliness. Mm-hmm. That's, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Um, but I came back here after a couple of rounds of schooling and some work to work in the nonprofit sector. I worked for San Diego Coast Keeper, which is an environmental advocacy organization for about six years, and then was very fortunate to join what was then San Diego Grantmakers, uh, and is now Catalyst of San Diego and Imperial Counties, uh, to work in the, 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 the philanthropy-adjacent sector, yeah, right, right. <laughs> the, the, the incredibly exciting world of infrastructure.
0: What was it that drew you to the nonprofit sector? Because you came out of Yale School of Management, I think, I sure did. and came back to San Diego and decided to dive right in with a nonprofit working on environmental issues. Why?
1: Yeah. Um, so from the time I was in eighth grade, I had uh, a, an amazing social studies teacher, Miss San Severino. Uh, she lit a fire that I would be able to be this. International titan of business. Uh I imagined myself strutting around in a power suit with shoulder pads and high heels and I was gonna live out of a suitcase and jet set all around the world and it was gonna be this amazing existence. Uh, so I went to business school. I thought, oh, I'm going to either major in Spanish and get a certificate in business, but no, I'm going to I'm going to get a business degree, and I'll just study Spanish on the side, and that'll be great. Turns out, I loved Spanish. I enjoyed business. I interviewed with a uh, one of these like in- international consulting firms, and within the first 20 minutes of the interview, I knew that I absolutely never would go into that field because it was <laughs> the worst experience I've ever had. Uh, And at the time I was in Washington, D.C., and there was this banner over the student union that said government and nonprofit career fair. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not looking for a job. I don't want to stay in D.C. I'm going to go home to San Diego and figure it out. But that's interesting. Don't really know what that's about. So I just wandered through as a college student does. And the CIA was there and Oxfam was there and... What actually happened was I dropped my resume and within a couple of months had a job offer from the National Geographic Society. Mm. And it's like Ghostbusters. If National Geographic asks you if you have want a job, you say yes. Yes. So I ended up in DC for the next six years or so uh, and honestly had a really incredible couple of managers uh, and mentors who sort of set me on the path that led me here today.
0: That's fantastic. It's how we often get to the places we're going yeah, in life. Yeah, it's true. On that score, you, when you um, came to San Diego and eventually ended up working at San Diego Grantmakers, you worked for a woman who was a legend. Yep. In the in the nonprofit arena, tell us a little bit about what it was like to work at Grantmakers, and then what you've tried to do as leader of what is now Catalyst.
1: Yeah. So lots of people will know that you're talking about Nancy Jameson. Yes. Uh, and she is an institution. Um, and, you know, uh, she created an environment. Uh, so Catalyst of San Diego and Imperial Counties, we changed our name two years ago, sort of reflect the more proactive stance that we have. But it's been around for 50 years as an organization. And Nancy's leadership over more than a decade really took it into the position to be able to take that thoughtful, proactive, uh, participatory stance, building on what was a legacy of creating a space where people could come to have hard conversations. Uh, She really embraced her role as a, a leader of service, I would say as a nurturer of people, and grantmakers became a place that you came not just to learn about how to do good philanthropy, but a place that you came to talk about those resources, to talk about where did they come from, who isn't at the table, how can we work more collaboratively together, and my first job was actually inspired by Nancy saying, um, at, at one point we were very fortunate to connect with the Satterberg Foundation and have partnered with them for about six years uh, to bring some funds into the region. And part of that was building the capacity at uh, Catalyst to host funder collaborative groups. And my first job there was as Senior Director of Collaborative Philanthropy. It was meant to sort of systematize and bring together in a cohesive strategy how we can unify Independent parties who are distributing funds to to have the time to get together and think about their collective impact, mm. not like big C, big I, but just like their 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 total impact yeah. and how they can do it better together.
0: So, how uh, when you when you took over mm-hmm. as leader of the organization, did it give you pause to to follow somebody like Nancy? And how did you? Wrap your head around what the opportunity was.
1: I, I, it certainly gives me pause. It's a legacy to live up to, uh, but I, I take pride in knowing that Nancy believed in me. Mm. Um, she actually left the organization uh, because she was ready to move on to other things, uh, and and very sadly, very tragically, um, we lost her to cancer just a couple of years later, but she had laid out the idea that she could be of service in other ways and that the organization could grow and thrive under new leadership because we had been set up to do the things that we're doing today. Uh, and And that means that, you know, we're all fortunate to be in this field of philanthropy. And for the most part, that hasn't come from any particular... Um, effort of ourselves beyond the sort of, you know, fill out a resume or or be born into the right family or what have you. So we really have a responsibility to steward that wealth in a way that recognizes uh, that it's really the communities that we're working in who have built that wealth over time. There's a disparity in how it's distributed, but there are enough resources for everyone to thrive. Mm -hmm. The reason that we have differentiated outcomes is because some have control over wealth and others don't. And so shifting from who we have been as San Diego grantmakers into who we are now as catalyst has been about continuing to build spaces, but to really much more specifically have those conversations and talk with folks about what are you trying to do to address the fact that you can write an X number dollar of check to a community that you have no knowledge about? And Mm -hmm. how can we really bridge and build relationships that allow us to return some of that self-determination to the communities that it's been taken from historically through slavery, uh, genocide of indigenous peoples, labor exploitation, all of these things that our country has in its past but doesn't have to have in our future.
0: Right. You know, I think um, as I think about the shift that you've made, uh, it is a brave one. And it has required some courage on your part. You know, people listening may not understand, but a grantmakers association is just typically a membership association of foundations or people interested in philanthropy, and it's a a, a vehicle for convening those folks, sharing resources, talking about ideas. But it doesn't necessarily have to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. And what you've done is shift catalyst in a direction where it has a point of view how has that been
1: it's been great and and i will credit our board of directors for putting in uh, a lot of hard work over the last many years to get to the point where this is what they want mm. you know because we're a nonprofit organization and we can have another podcast to talk about all the foibles of how you know nonprofits are set up but we are our mission Is set by our board of directors and they have said look enable to remain relevant in this community we need to do something additive if if all we're doing is taking resources to hold meetings even though that is in fact more or less all we do (laughs) uh, we we need to be a multiplier effect and so uh, you know people ask oh well didn't you lose members you're coming out and you're talking about DACA, are you coming in talking about LGBT community members and their rights? And the answer is no. Uh, we've had some good conversations. Uh, we've had people who ask us why, saying, you know, this isn't your lane. You're, you're meant to be convening us for meetings about Form 990s. And they want to know why we're talking about these things. But as far as I can tell, uh, that just opens a door to help everybody come to terms. And, you know, not everybody's going to come to the same place. And I was talking to somebody, like, Was I, I don't remember who it was, but I was talking to somebody who sort of asked, like, where are we as an organization? And I said, well, we're a little farther ahead than our members, and we're quite a bit behind where our staff are, right? So like, <laughs> we're, we're doing the work to hold space for people to come to new conclusions.
0: And are you finding that people are... Uh... Your constituents, which includes philanthropists, foundations, are they engaging in that conversation?
1: They are. They are. Um, And I'll acknowledge, you know, there's a a number. We have something under 100 members, and it's Mm. mostly institutional. So foundations, folks with some sort of form around them, you know, not an individual who's managing their own wealth. Uh, And it includes community foundations whose donors are those people. Right. So not everybody is at our table, but that's okay. You know, We're not trying to be everything to everybody. And we have incredible partners in the community from the U- University of San Diego Nonprofit Institute. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna say some and forget others. Right. So I'll just stop right there. <laughs> right, but right. we have incredible partners in the community who are doing different pieces of this work. But our members honestly have been so grateful to be able to get together, understand what one another is doing, understand what one another is struggling with, um, share experiences and resources that we've only seen a hunger for more of this, more conversations with folks that they wouldn't otherwise be able to meet with, whether that's you know somebody who lives and works down the street or somebody who's coming from another state. Uh, I, I think there is a lot more to do in the space of opening people's experiences and understanding because... Primarily, the folks who hold control over wealth are not the people who are experiencing the Im- oppression and injustices that they are trying to solve for.
0: Right, and so that disconnect creates the tension and makes the conversation difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's pause for a moment to talk about the plight of nonprofits more generally or the challenges. You, you said it would yeah. require a whole other <laughs> program, and it probably would. But I think it's important to understand what it's like to be a nonprofit at this point in time, and particularly to be a nonprofit at this point in time in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Uh, My observation about where we are currently is that organizations are facing a myriad of social challenges coming out of the... The period after, well, we're not really Mm post-COVID, but we're post—let's say post-pandemic. After the murder of George Floyd, all the social disruption that happened, and the economic dislocation that resulted from that, what are you hearing from nonprofits about how they're doing?
1: Yeah. So the the traditional pattern, right, is that as the economic and social situation degrades, generally the demand for what nonprofits provide increases. Mm -hmm. And that holds true. What I think probably could have been predicted from a community standpoint, but maybe wasn't from uh, a philanthropic or government standpoint, was throughout that period of time, we saw people and communities rise up and do what they needed to do to support themselves and their communities. Mm. The the resurgence or visibility of mutual aid efforts, meaning groups of folks in a neighborhood who were collecting and delivering food, uh, medications, giving people rides to doctor's appointments, that was uh, really prevalent across the country, but certainly also here in San Diego. And in fact, resulted in some cases in the formation of new nonprofit organizations, because they recognized that what happened during that period of time you were describing was not that new problems emerged, those have been there, but they became in some cases more um, sharp, more uh, segregated, and more in the news, frankly. So suddenly there was a response from philanthropy that allowed folks to do some of that work in aditi- in addition to what they were doing on their own, but the need didn't go away, right? So we went through, th- we'll call it three years of pandemic And there's still a need to support uh, Asian American populations in voting. There's still a need for granny down the lane to get her medication. There's still a need for an autistic child to be able to get uh, health insurance, right? Like all of these things are still prevalent. And so what I have seen happen for nonprofits is that they are – exceeding their previous capacity in providing services but the ability to create the infrastructure around that including the communications strategies so that other people know that they're doing it and will provide them the resources whether that's philanthropy or the government or what have you uh, isn't keeping pace and so we have a lot of folks who are struggling to hire folks to do the grant writing, to qualify for certain funding streams. And the answer isn't always funding. I, you know, mm-hmm. we, we work <laughs> in right, funding, and so right. we talk a lot about funding as though it's right. the, the, the best and highest um, goal. Uh, but I want to acknowledge also that there are a lot of other things. But I would say that the biggest gap I'm seeing in the nonprofit community right now is that capacity to sustain themselves in a way that is healthy for the organization, the employees, the volunteers, and the community.
0: The University of San Diego's um, State of the Nonprofit Sector uh, Report this came from the Nonprofit Institute um, last year indicated that San Diegans as a whole have a lot of admiration and support for nonprofit organizations. Um, At the same time, that doesn't necessarily get translated into the type of support monetary or otherwise, that the sector needs in order to respond to the levels of need that it's experiencing. Is that something, and I don't think that's unique to San Diego. I actually think the level of awareness of the nonprofit sector here is probably higher than in Mm -hmm. many other communities. But why do you think there is a disconnect between what people know and value about nonprofits and their willingness to get behind their work?
1: There's so many things we could talk about. <laughs> uh the one thing I, I would start with is by saying we need to look at one of the disproportionate facts about giving is that folks in households with lower incomes give a higher percentage of what they have hmm. to the community than those in in higher. So we're not talking about absolute numbers. We're just talking about right. percentages. percentages. Right. So, you know, writ large in layman's terms, it would be like folks with less money are more generous. Um, and I think there's a lot of psychology behind that, but important. Uh, and there's a lot of economics there, right? That's just that insists that stay true, because the richer you are, the easier it is to invest to become richer and richer. We saw that through COVID. You know, mm-hmm. if you had a, a retirement fund, it got richer over that period of time. And we're in this, like, do we have a recession or not period right now? But that's important to talk about, because when we look at the metrics that USD puts out, which are really important, um, and Catalyst is actually l- syncing its member like funder survey with the USD survey this year, so we can say, what are the nonprofits saying, What is philanthropy saying? Do they match? Yeah. hopefully, <laughs> and if not, what conversations do we need to have? but the need to talk about the work that's happening and its importance is one thing. And communications doesn't come naturally. Folks who are doing the work don't immediately think, in addition to like getting these folks to their medical appointments, I need to make sure I write a blog post about that. That's mm-hmm. not everybody's first instinct. But that is the primary way that funders are figuring out who they're going to give to. And so that's why you see also a... a higher level of investment into sort of large established organizations who are all doing wonderful work but whose management structures look more like traditional corporations and the people occupying those seats look more like the donors. So you get white-led organizations with CEOs, VPs, directors, managers, etc. who are paid on a certain pay scale and work a standard week. Like That is a lot, it's just a lot easier to understand Mm -hmm. for most folks who are in the driver's seat of funding. And one of the things that we're trying to do at Catalyst is get people out into communities just to meet and spend time with some of these grassroots organizations that are the only ones who can re- reach, you know, maybe it's not granny down the street, it's Miawela, you know, around the corner All or right. across the border. And once you start to build those relationships, we can start to see funding flow differently.
0: That's so interesting. Do you for somebody who is brand new to San Diego, mm. like say I was a year ago when mm-hmm. I had a conversation mm-hmm. with you, mm-hmm. who wanted to know about philanthropy in San Diego, how would you characterize it?
1: Very collaborative. I am constantly impressed by how interested our foundation and funder community is in talking with one another. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons, I think, is that uh, we are sort of by definition a a scrappy town. Uh, We don't have huge corporate or philanthropic headquarters uh, like some other places in the country. We are an amazing community that when you look at a map, if it's zoomed out far enough what you're gonna see is Los Angeles, right? Right. So if you're looking at somebody who's interested in funding quote unquote Southern California, they're not necessarily thinking about us. So the fact that we get together and collaborate uh, is I think the defining characteristic of philanthropy here. The flaw in that is that folks don't necessarily have all the information that they need. Mm. And so one of the things, that Catalyst is working on, is how do we create these spaces for the funders to connect with one another? So, you know, if you're funding youth arts programs, you wanna know who is funding middle school band and who is funding, uh, you know, 18 to 26 year old theater, and who is funding Native American cultural initiatives so that there can be a coordination and we don't miss opportunities to work together or to uh, be complementary.
0: So as part of what you're doing, you're helping philanthropists and foundations understand a variety of different organizations and approaches to the work in community. And I loved your example a moment ago of, of the organization led by Manuela and, and the you know, neighborhood-based, focused on, on community work, maybe not the model everybody's used mm-hmm. to in their head. Um, Sometimes in the way philanthropy talks about this today, we set this up as an either-or, that it has to be one or the other. And as I look around the landscape of San Diego, I see some fabulous big nonprofits that Mm -hmm. are working really hard to think about the community differently, to reach out differently. And they have scale. So that's important. And they're struggling financially. Mm -hmm. I see small organizations that never get the resources, because to your point, they're not getting, in the past, they've not gotten the attention. How do we get to a conversation in our community where we see both of those as legitimate Mm -hmm. and figure out how to knit that together into a coherent philosophy of philanthropy, or am I dreaming?
1: (laughs) Um, I think you are dreaming, and it's a good dream. Yeah. Uh. We, we cannot achieve the things that we don't have if we don't dream, right? Mm-hmm. And so often we're constrained in our actions by what we know. Mm. So I, I, I would say we should all do more dreaming. Uh, but the key there is then we have to essentially fund those dreams, mm. right? And if you don't have a two-year study with concrete deliverables and data that demonstrates that over time this will scale and result in great things, you still have to fund it, because it might. Mm. <laughs> um, and the challenge, I think, is that, that systemically we have as a community acknowledged the need for uh, community-based, community-led organizations or just groups of people Uh, that are reaching out and talking to their peers and delivering services and organizing actions by their peers. We haven't yet gotten our structures or perhaps our mindsets to provide resources there. So what we've done is a challenging, problematic interim step of funding the large organizations to then provide funds to those small organizations and there's some legitimacy to that in that if you want to talk about public dollars, you know state funds, federal grants, there is so much administrative burden to that that some of those smaller organizations simply couldn't manage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it is about uh, what's required to qualify, and I th- that we could address, but like that administrative burden is a is a real and true barrier, but if you're talking about a $20,000 grant to do a music program in uh, a, a certain neighborhood, it's called Barrio Logan, right? You should be able to figure out how to just fund the groups that are in Barrio Logan. You don't need an interlocutor, not not because that there's anything wrong with that intermediary organization, but every time we add a step in between, we're shaving off efficiency, we're shaving off dollars, we're shaving off uh, a real connection with the community. so having new ways to fund and really just recognizing that we kind of philanthropy is so privileged, you know, in in many regards, nobody's looking over philanthropy's shoulder, you know, telling them what they can and can't do. so all somebody uh, I' was at a conference, a national conference of people who do what I do, and somebody made the very astute point that. Almost all the rules in philanthropy are ones that we've made up ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's only a few actual laws. The rest about how we distribute funds over time, the reports we require, the, the documentation that we have to have before we give money out. Even the notion of needing somebody to sign an agreement. That's just stuff we've made up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I get really excited when people try to just do something a little different that lets go a little bit of the control they're exerting over the funds and says, you know what? I trust you. And if things go way left field and not what I expected, well, I was going to give that money away anyway, and now I've learned something. Mm -hmm.
0: And I can attest that that is a sometimes hard thing Mm. for foundations to do, but you're absolutely right that the rules are rules, for the most part, we've imposed, Mm. and I think we're seeing in the field a growing awareness of the need to trust organizations, mm. which gets expressed in fewer requirements and it gets and more general operating grants and more multi-year grants. What excites you most about what you're seeing in San Diego?
1: People's openness to change. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I would never wish upon us uh, anything that happened in the last five years. However. Some of the lessons that came out of it um, have really cracked the mold. Mm-hmm. And so when I have foundations come to us, true story, and say, Megan, we really want to fund some black led organizations, who are they? <laughs> <You know? laughs> On the one hand, you think, well, well... <laughs> you're glad they're
0: asking, right? <laughs> oh, exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. You think, okay. <laughs> cool, (laughs) we're going to work with this. Or when you have a a giving circle say, you know what, just give that money out early even though their grant doesn't start for two months and we don't need reports. Mm -hmm. That starts, again, it starts a conversation. It starts to prove that we can in fact do things differently. And we've seen more interest in funding community organizing, whether the foundations are calling it that or not, but just people spending time organizing themselves so that they have a voice, mm. so that they can have influence, so that they can create the community that they want to see. That's been super exciting. I've seen more interest in indigenous communities. We have uh, 18 different Kumeyaay tribes in the region and in Imperial Valley, the Quechan are there as well. And mm. these are folks who are members of our everyday society. This is not a historical fact or a historical people. So that's been really exciting. And uh, just Imperial Valley itself, which is to the east of San Diego County. It's the same size geographically as San Diego County. It is economically and culturally linked. I have met more people who are from the Imperial Valley
0: um, I've met a ton since like, I've been there.
1: Yeah. Right? Like since I started just saying the words, people say, oh, yeah, I grew up in El Centro. Oh, sure. Yeah. I it's amazing. So it's having folks in the philanthropic world have an interest in funding in that region, which has an incredible immigration and health and environmental justice needs and opportunities has been really good. So just like openness to change and not just funding the same way to yeah. the same folks all the time.
0: And what I love about your good natured understanding of that coming from all kinds of different mm-hmm. organizations and folks is we all start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, what you're seeing in general, though, is a willingness to change and move and take on issues that maybe weren't true five years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. And as a sector, I think, you know, as you said, every person comes from their own place. And you know, we work with members who are staff of corporate foundations or giving programs. We work with folks who are members of families who have a family foundation. We work with giving circles and they have different financial capacities. They have different abilities to influence decisions uh, and they have different uh, interests in funding, having relationships to go with the funding, doing some advocacy to go with those relationships. So we really have to create an environment in which everybody understands what their options are and feels valued for what they can and are, and are willing to give. And that's sometimes a challenge because we get real excited about something and we want everybody to do the most, the fastest <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and all together. And that's just not the reality, but that's okay.
0: You recently chose to take on as an organization a program for individual artists mm-hmm. uh, that we've also funded. And I'm I'm curious why Catalyst decided that that was a priority.
1: Yeah, so you're talking about the California Arts Council Creative Core Program, and in our region, it's called Far South Border North, uh, and it's a roughly five million dollar program to essentially uh, increase the income of artists and cultural practitioners across the region, funded by the state. We're doing that in partnership with the City of San Diego and the San Diego Regional Arts and Culture Coalition. Uh, the grant is actually to the city. And you know we started in the, in the project just at the invitation of the other partners to offer what we knew about the community-based organizations that uh, might be good, good uh, partners to be involved. The reason that we have increasingly over the past five years been involved in public funding efforts is that we recognized our region is not getting its fair share. We also wanted to see what it was that philanthropy could do to address that challenge. During COVID, we partnered with the San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce to distribute small business grants to black owned businesses. That was also in partnership with the city of San Diego And we recognized that because of our position with philanthropy, we could do a couple of things. One, we knew a lot about how to do grants, and we knew a lot about how to do them in new ways and how to ground them in a community and equity-centered process, right? Like take as little of the burden to the recipients and take as much of the burden onto the grant maker. We continue to do that because... There's a need in the region for that capacity we were talking about. Another example is the Stop the Hate grant from the state of California, which is about funding groups doing anti hate work. It came out of uh, the recognition that Asian American API communities were subject to incredible hate incidents, hate crimes during the COVID pandemic. And so funding came through. But in our region, there was an API coalition that said, look, The groups that are part of this coalition either are not eligible or don't want to be the recipient and manager of these funds.
0: Mm.
1: We wanna partner with you to do that because we have a relationship, because we trust you to do this well, and because we know that you can manage it administratively and will be in partnership with us to lead the work programmatically. Similarly with Creative Core, the city said, look, we're a government entity. But we know you, we have a relationship, and we want to think about how Catalyst can be the vehicle for a more equitable grant distribution process that goes more quickly and more smoothly and is a better experience for the artists.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm delighted that you've taken on that role, and it's an important role. And and to all of that, I would just add, at least from our perspective, the importance of artists for San Diego can't be overstated. Mm -hmm. I think we we need those voices and we need them to feel like this is a place they can be.
1: Yeah, and by working with the Conrad Previs Foundation to add another 20 or 30 percent to that creative core grant, we were able to add almost 50 percent more to the income that the artists are, are receiving. And that combination of public and private funds uh, is, I think, a little bit of the magic that we're hoping to see continue Uh, to replicate into the future.
0: And I do think that that is a magical formula that San Diego can repeat over and over Mm -hmm. again. Before we wrap up, uh, I'm I'm just thinking about what you see as the big challenges. And I want to come back to what we mentioned early uh, in this conversation about time, because we've talked a lot about funding, which is a nice term for money. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about other forms of support. But the one non-negotiable in life is time, mm-hmm. and yet you've thought about how we, ma- how we manufacture time, how we create time, so tell me a little bit about what you're thinking there.
1: The idea of time as a commodity has become problematic mm-hmm. for us. Uh, there has been much said in recent time about rest and rejuvenation and wellness and yet the conversations about remote work and uh, whether or not hybrid works are all about productivity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you ask my husband or even my colleagues what I do, they say, well, she has a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> my calendar is, is, is terrifying. <laughs> uh, but what that actually looks like is building relationships and cultivating trust. And if we hope to make a change in the, our society uh, through the activities of a social sector, we have to have more relationships and deeper trust. And that means we have to have the time to get there mm. because it's not instantaneous. And there are a lot of harms uh, that need to be undone or understood grappled with and and addressed uh, between individuals between communities uh, between sectors to everybody we've all got our stuff right right? Right. Um, and so i think our biggest challenge is to say we are going to set aside the time and by set aside the time it means we have to all agree that we don't need a concrete deliverable to come out of a period of time other than some folks got together and and spoke. Mm-hmm. There's a really salient for me example of that in a group of nonprofits called San Diego Leaders. They were a couple of dozen nonprofits working broadly defined on leadership development. So get out the vote or how to be elected or just what your rights are as a parent. And some of our members uh, back about seven, eight years ago sort of looked around and said, you know what? We've got a bunch of uh, nonprofits sort of doing the same thing. Maybe they should get together. And there's a little bit of conversation. Do you want to do this? Would this be helpful? Okay, great. And those foundations said, we will fund you for five years to Hmm. just get together as a cohort. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it took probably two years to even get to a place where those organizations were ready to talk about their shared vision and their shared objectives. And it's been beautiful. It's been challenging, but it has really resulted in a, a network of nonprofits that are Connected in a way, and not, you know, not to take away for it's not like we did this for them, but just the fact that they had that space and were told, we're gonna provide this space, we're gonna hold this space for you, we're gonna feed you lunch, and we don't expect anything from you other than that you work together has really sort of set my mind as to both what is possible and what is required for us to get to that collaborative, understanding place where everybody knows what their place is and that it's it's different, that we're all different, but we're all in this together.
0: In our work, we uh, we absolutely believe the statement about that, that community moves at the speed of trust, mm-hmm. and your example is a perfect illustration of why that is. You know, that we, in, in some ways, Megan, we're, um, well, we are both in the same business, which is you know i'm thinking we could say it's about philanthropy we could say it's about social change which it is but i think it's also about helping our society find hope in a time when there i think there's a lot of struggle over that because of what's happening with climate change mm-hmm. because of what of what people see happening in national politics the national scene they, the 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 epidemic of loneliness in the country it's easy to despair mm. What is giving you hope now in the work that you're doing?
1: It's really the people, you know, (laughs) it's a pat answer. But I had a conversation today that I'll share that brings a lot of things together uh, that gives me hope that we're on the right path. There is an effort led by a remarkable individual named uh, Mark Philpart, called the California Black Freedom Fund. This is a collaborative fund that a number, about a dozen or so funders, have uh, contributed to. It's an effort to raise $100 million to start uh, to support black power building, uh, which essentially means that people who identify as black in our communities have a voice in the future of our state. And the way that he talks about the work Specifically identifies the need to build community power. Incorporates partnerships with policymakers at the state level who have recognized that they can and must speak out about the disenfranchisement of black communities and the need to return wealth and wealth building capabilities to black folks. And also about the, broad diversity in our black community. you got black refugees and immigrants, especially here in San Diego. You also have black folks who are not immigrants. You've got amazing artists and entrepreneurs. You've got business folks. You've got uh, people who are mothers. There's just so much richness, and yet at the same time, this is something we have to call out specifically because of the history of slavery and racism that has denied the black population their rights. And here we have a statewide effort led by somebody who has political support and financial support, and there's a really bright future for this effort. So I think if we can do something like that, almost anything is possible. Mm.
0: Well, thank you for that example, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you taking the time to stop and talk with me. This has just been a wonderful conversation, and I really am grateful for the work you're doing
1: as As am I to you and your team, it's not something that anybody can do alone, and so mm-hmm. it's good to be here with you today and and uh, as we do the work in an ongoing way.
0: Thank you. All right, a wide ranging conversation touching on so much about the nonprofit and, uh, and philanthropic sector's work. I like that we had a conversation, though, first about community and that Megan touched a couple of times on how San Diego sees itself as a scrappy community, that when people look at Southern California and just think L.A., we've had to define ourselves against that and be our own thing, which has been my experience and is absolutely true. I also like the perspective of a homegrown San Diegan who— then moved to the East Coast, experienced life and education there and heard how other people perceive us, including that the niceness of this community is quote-unquote fake. Again, not how Megan's experienced or how I've experienced it. And it's good though to see that we have a unique culture and style which, by the way, we can be very proud of and, and, and see at the same time through the lens of other places. Uh, so that part of the conversation was, I think, I think, fun and, and worth reflecting on. In terms of the larger challenges confronting the sector that we're a part of, uh, Megan's emphasis through Catalyst on focusing on under-resourced groups and communities groups working on the ground to actually change the equation in their communities is an important reminder for all of us in philanthropy that as we do this work, it really is important to be listening to and supporting the people in communities who are doing the hard work of trying to bring about change there and not just only working through the traditional avenues. Her, Her comment that we need to be strategic and thinking about our giving and not just handing out money in the same old ways was important, as was her counterpoint to that, which is the importance of trust and listening to organizations and to groups and supporting what they think is important. I think she really made a a case for the challenges confronting nonprofits in this unique moment in time where they are not only constrained and challenged economically, but also culturally to meet the changes of the moment and to figure out how they remain relevant in the middle of it. One way that she emphasized was talking about the role of communications, and it is true that many nonprofit organizations and many philanthropic folks and organizations lack either training or resources to communicate well. But what she underscored, and I would underscore also, is that it is through telling our stories that we begin to bring about the change that we're all looking for. She also noted in response to a comment I had made that we can't collectively achieve what we what we don't have if we don't dream about it. We have to be willing to dream and really aspire in bold new ways in order for us to begin to change the present circumstance. And I think that's the work that she said about doing with Catalyst. It's the work that we are collectively embarked upon doing in the philanthropic and nonprofit sectors. And I look forward to more conversations about this in the future as we seek to change the landscape for philanthropy in San Diego. Thanks for listening. Join us next time and please be sure to subscribe, rate, review and share this podcast. Stop and Talk is a project of the Conrad Prebis Foundation. It is produced by Crystal Page and Adam Greenfield. It is engineered by Adam Greenfield and recorded in the voice of San Diego studios. Thanks again.